It's Now or Never, a podcast about the survival of our species, the end of the world as we know it, and the beginning of a new one. Episode 11, Halle Berry Did Nothing Wrong, with Michael Jones. A note for new listeners. We are not experts. We're regular schmucks dreaming up the luxury space solar punks anarcho acid communist future one episode at a time. And we may be wrong about absolutely everything we say, but we'll keep our minds and hearts open to any truths we discover along the way. We're all learning and making it up as we go, just like you. To our old friends, welcome back. Shout out to the Collapse Support subreddit, all the eco-socialists, green anarchists, communalists, extinction rebels, earth strikers, and everyone who's thinking, learning, processing, grieving, agitating, organizing, making Murray Bookchin memes, and finding ways to act along with us. If there's any way I can help, or if you want to share something with the listeners, let me know. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a review on iTunes so others can find us and join the conversation, because this is a conversation we're having together, and we want to hear your voices too. You can leave a comment on our website, itsnoworeneverpodcast.com, send us an email at jeremy at itsnoworeneverpodcast.com, chime in on Twitter or our Facebook page, or join our brand new Discord discussion group. Hit me up for an invite. If you want more of this kind of thing, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google, One thing I really enjoy about making these podcasts is it gives me a way to somehow start to integrate these almost two selves that I feel like I'm living in. There's the everyday, do the work, go to the grocery store, plan for the future, watch television self. And then there's the self that knows that societal collapse is all but inevitable at this point, who wonders whether it's morally justifiable to have children one day, who suspects we have very little time left to enjoy the status quo. But you can't really stay with that self through the day-to-day, and you can't pretend like it's not happening either. So here we are, at what could be the end of all things, talking about fantasy, TV, superheroes, climate change, and Pokemon. Because even if it is just a matter of time, There's nothing wrong with enjoying what we have right now, feeling grateful that we've made it to see the final season of Game of Thrones. So we'll get heavy, and we'll talk about TV, and we'll talk about what kind of world we hope to build after this one falls apart. The following is an excerpt from We Are All Going to Die, an open letter and anti-manifesto to climate offensive, extinction rebellion, earth strike, and other nonviolent movements, written by Black Oak Click. It opens with a quote from Crime Think. When the world ends, people come out of their apartments and meet their neighbors for the first time. They share food, stories, companionship. No one has to go to work or the laundromat. Nobody remembers to check the mirror or scale or email account before leaving the house. Graffiti artists surge into the streets. Strangers embrace, sobbing and laughing. Every moment possesses an immediacy formerly spread out across months. Burdens fall away. People confess secrets and grant forgiveness. The stars come out over New York City, and nine months later, a new generation is born. The earth is not dying, it is being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. But us, me, you, even those who are killing the earth, we're going to die. 
Perhaps there's the small chance that you will survive the mass migration to the last reaches of habitable land, but let's be realistic here. We would like to say this is the future we're hurtling towards at an ever-increasing rate, but it isn't. It's the present. Islands are sinking into the ocean. The poverty-stricken are freezing to death on the streets. People are burning to death in gigantic wildfires. The collapse is not a single event. It's a process. And it's currently underway. In the best case scenario, death is liberation. Perhaps the real you won't die per se. Instead, the abstract you. Your way of life, your social relationships under capitalism, your system of meaning that's been drilled into your head since day one, will die. Can't we reform the system? No. We can't. The system is the problem. And the system runs deep. The problem isn't just capitalism. It's also the state. But it also isn't just the state. It's the ideology of consumption itself. That beings, plants, animals, fungi, even inanimate natural resources are objects to be bought, sold, and eventually consumed. This ideology is perhaps the deepest ideology we have. It permeates every form of knowledge, from science, to art, to politics. It seeps through our language. It permeates our relationships. It is the very basis of our societies, if it cannot be deemed our society itself." End quote. On Monday, April 15, 2019, Extinction Rebellion took to the streets again in London. It was a huge, non-violent protest event, and over a thousand people were arrested. I've recently seen some criticisms of Extinction Rebellion. People have said getting arrested won't accomplish enough, you're just giving people police records, getting them into the system, they're being too friendly with the police in general, and the efficacy of their non-violent methods are questionable. And I, I understand these criticisms. I don't think they are without merit, and I think it's a useful part of this ongoing discussion. But I have a lot of respect for Extinction Rebellion for getting some attention on the issue, for motivating people to get involved, and if nothing else, we could consider this the first wave. Uh, at least with Extinction Rebellion, we can say they tried that. We tried that option. In the popular narrative, nonviolent figures like Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi are held up as shining examples, and I'm aware of the fact that this narrative excludes violent action that uh, was happening alongside of these movements. We can recognize that there's a more complicated, wider narrative, and maybe Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have been effective if there wasn't also a portion of the civil rights movement that wasn't committed to nonviolence. But it also doesn't mean that the nonviolent wing wasn't instrumental. I don't think we should be too quick to write off Extinction Rebellion. And I think that everyone taking part in Extinction Rebellion has earned our respect. I'm not outright advocating violence. Violence is complicated. There's a great piece I read recently called Against the Logic of the Guillotine, and I want to read a little excerpt from that too. Those who don't desire revenge because they're not compassionate enough to be outraged about injustice, or because they're simply not paying attention, deserve no credit for this. 
There's less virtue in apathy than in the worst excesses of vengefulness. When I think about the harm they are causing, I feel ready to break their bones, but that desire is distinct from my politics. I don't confuse that desire for a proposal for liberation. I'll just end with, if we wish to wield coercive force responsibly when there is no other choice, we should cultivate a distaste for it. I'm not going to say that violence is never necessary, but I'm always going to be uncomfortable with any kind of delighting in it. I think anytime violence is necessary, it should be done minimally. And we should be critical of all ends justifying means arguments because ends justifying means arguments can quickly lead to some pretty terrible things. Now, this isn't to say that radical action isn't necessary. That 2018 special report from the IPCC warned that without societal transformation and rapid implementation of ambitious greenhouse gas reduction measures, pathways to limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius and achieving sustainable development will be exceedingly difficult. Extending that, there's a recent paper for the upcoming United Nations Global Sustainable Development Report prepared by biophysicists with the BIOS Research Unit in Finland. Quote, market-based action will not suffice, even with a high carbon price. There must be a comprehensive vision and closely coordinated plans. Otherwise, a rapid system-level transformation toward global sustainability goals is inconceivable. So the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about before we get started is uh, acid communism. We talked a little bit about Mark Fisher in the past couple episodes and the project that Mark Fisher was working on before he sadly took his own life was called Acid Communism. It seems like it was an idea that was kind of born from conversations between Mark Fisher and Jeremy Gilbert, another writer. Gilbert was able to read the manuscript that Fisher was working on. So I read a few different things, but it really started making more sense when I read Psychedelic Socialism by Jeremy Gilbert. I just wanted to to read a couple little passages from that. Mark was interested in reviving the idea of consciousness raising and in theorizing the effects of capitalist ideology in terms of depletion of consciousness. Ideology is sometimes understood simply as a form of propaganda, giving us a false impression of the world in order to prove the interests of the powerful elite. But many thinkers have also explored the idea that ideology and various apparatuses of power, from the state to the church, function not just by feeding us lies, but by affecting us negatively in order to make us feel less able to act in the world, less able to think creatively or dynamically. From this perspective, raising consciousness isn't just a matter of giving people information about the sources of the oppression, but of enabling them to feel personally and collectively powerful enough to challenge it. So I'm going to jump around to a couple other little passages. Consciousness raising has always meant coming to an understanding that one's personal problems are in fact not individual, discrete, private elements of experience at all, but the effects of large-scale social and historical processes, and that the solution to these problems cannot be found through individual actions of any kind, but only through creative collaboration with others with whom one shares material interests. Here's where the whole countercultural panoply of raves, drugs, yoga, qigong, zen, etc. might come back into the picture. Because in fact, this is precisely what most of those collections of techniques have always been designed to do. In fact, if the words acid or psychedelic designate anything in phrases like acid communism or psychedelic socialism or just psychedelic culture, 
then they could be taken to refer to a set of practices and ideas which are at one and the same time mystical and materialist. A materialist mysticism, which acknowledges the complex potentialities of human embodied existence, without tying that recognition to any set of supernatural or theistic beliefs. This materialist mysticism would treat the investigation of technologies of non-self as one of its key priorities. So from that and the rest of the article, the idea basically seems to be maybe there's a place in leftist consciousness raising for these kind of self-transcendent practices. So don't read the acid of acid communism as being specifically LSD. It's talking about yoga. It's talking about meditation. Any technique of self-transcendence where you get a look at how you are not just your tiny little ego, but inherently connected to everything else around you, your social context, other human beings, the world as a whole, and then kind of using that transcendence to inform and empower taking radical action. So I'm kind of encouraged by this because I know there can be kind of an anti-hippie current within radical leftist culture. And I do sort of understand feeling a little suspicious of some of the more naive components of hippie culture. The whole, like, we'll just uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Like, we'll just, if we give everyone acid, then the world will be enlightened and peaceful and... That's not what this is saying. That's not what this is about. This is just saying maybe we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe we don't have to be so naive about it, but maybe there's still a important role for some of these self-transcendent techniques in the wider leftist culture. And I'm also kind of seeing the same thing happening in fits and starts with, say, like Western Buddhist culture. This is kind of happening in the other direction. So, I mean, hopefully they're going to meet in the middle on a wider scale. Western pragmatic Dharma communities are sometimes seen as, at first glance at least, kind of dominated by kind of a nerdy white male, and I say this as a nerdy white male, kind of energy, even neoliberal. But there have actually been waves of movements within Western Buddhism, like uh, eco-Buddhism or anarcho-Buddhism or Zenarchy, and uh, much wider forms of engaged Buddhism. Thich Nhat Hanh, prominent Vietnamese monk and author. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote this, Interbeing 14 Guidelines for Engaged Buddhism. I'm just going to read, Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. I think this is really important right now as we are, as a species, kind of struggling to wrap our heads around collapse and what that might mean and how we can approach that and process the trauma and help each other. Yeah, like I said, I'm hoping this, uh, Mark Fisher is kind of a, a famous figure in leftist circles. So I'm hoping by his ideas about acid communism are, are going to kind of drag leftist politics into this meeting place with engaged mystical and contemplative traditions. I think this is a really effective blending of these cultural currents. Now existence, you see something that is spontaneous. Your hair grows by itself. Your heart beats by itself. You breathe. 
pretty much by itself. Your glands secrete their essences by themselves. You don't have voluntary control over these things. So we say it happens spontaneously. Okay, that's enough of that. Got a fun conversation with Michael Jones. This will be his third appearance on the podcast. We're going to talk about everything from the upcoming His Dark Materials series on the BBC, Sam Elliott, Halle Berry, and Catwoman, the apocalyptic tendencies in Protestantism, including briefly the Left Behind series. And speaking of Left Behind, we'll talk about garbage, plus the cost of convenience, alienation, the Green New Deal, the importance of seeing stars, and the tragedy of the commons. So without further ado... Hey, welcome back! Hey, thank you for having me back. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a while. Before I forget, the BBC is doing a His Dark Materials series. Did you see yeah, that? Yeah, I saw that. I'm stoked, because the movie sucked. The movie was very bad, and I think there was such an uproar about that book being made in the movie back in the day. Like, I remember listening to uh, my dad's, like, conservative radio stuff that he would play when we were in the car, and they were like, oh, it's about atheist kids who set out to kill God. Like, that's They kind of accidentally kill God. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. <laughs> It's Atheist kids who accidentally let God out of his little room. <laughs> <laughs> they, they accidentally open God's window and he blows away. <laughs> yeah, it's way less metal than it sounds. A gentle smile crossed his face as he dissipated. Yeah. yeah. But I'm excited to see, because, I mean, like, the BBC is going to give fewer fucks. I hated how they, they like, neutered the ending of the movie. They like, yeah. chopped off the real ending. They filmed it. They filmed the real ending. They just didn't put it in the movie. It was, part of it was in the trailer. They just never made it into a film. Oh, that's but, so lame. I was waiting yeah. for that the whole movie. I'm like, and ah. the sky opens. No. You can see another world on the other side of the sky. Oh, so yeah. good. Rob was telling me about some of the casting, and I am a little... I thought Daniel Craig as Lord Asriel was perfect. He had, like, the gravitas of Lord Asriel. I'm not sure how I feel about James McAvoy. He doesn't, like, strike the same, like, figure as a Daniel Craig, but yeah, we'll see. Lin-Manuel Miranda as... Is he Lee Scoresby? Yeah, the yeah. the Texan guy. Yeah, the like airship pilot or whatever. He, uh, Sam Elliott as him. I thought that was a really good choice. Oh, that was perfect. Yeah. And I fucking love Sam Elliott. Yeah, but he's but... great in Parks and Rec. Eagleton Ron. Eagleton Ron. I love Eagleton Ron. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how much they hate him, but it makes yeah. me love him even more. The fact that Ron Swanson of all people, like, just the rage that he inspires in Ron, it's great. What a great character. And uh, A Star is Born. Have you seen A Star is Born? Not yet. I feel like the world's worst gay. Oh, man. Is it popular with the gays? Oh, yeah. It's a thing. Because singing, I guess? Or... Well, and Lady Gaga. And Lady Gaga. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. This is a very heterosexual focused, like... Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm not surprised. But I've heard it's really good. Yeah, it's and good. And it's, it's winning awards and stuff, so... And Sam Elliott made me cry, so... Oh, he's in it? He's in it. He makes me cry by looking sort of angled away from the camera with a tear in his eye while he's backing his truck up. So <laughs> look out for that. It's kind of intense, but it's well acted. Mm -hmm. Good script. I recently watched um, the, the two um, Tim Burton Batman movies. Oh, yeah. I recently watched both of them for the first time. And I have to say, I feel like we were robbed of the true Catwoman movie that we deserve with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. As Catwoman in her own movie. Like, I would have paid any price to watch that movie. 
she was just unhinged, I would have loved it. <laughs> yeah, that probably should have happened. Also, Tim Burton's planned third Batman movie with Billy D. Williams as... Oh, as Two-Face. As Two-Face, yeah. What's his faces? Both faces. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah. I can't believe we got Batman forever instead. And then Halle Berry Catwoman. I still haven't seen that, but I've, yeah. heard, it's, I've heard it's not the best. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> I don't know. Halle Berry meant listen to this podcast. I don't want to trash her filmography. Look, we all love Halle Berry. <laughs> the, the issue is not Halle Berry. <laughs> Just like the, the Bond movie that she was in. She was not the problem with no, that Bond movie. Not the invisible fault. car and, and the space laser powered by face diamonds. That Those was. Diamonds. Those were the problems with that movie. Yeah, those were among the problems with that movie. <laughs> among the, <laughs> the the CG sequence of Pierce Brosnan pretending to surf down the giant wave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. Speaking of like adaptations with the Nemo and Miranda attached, the Name of the Wind is becoming a TV show as well with Nemo oh, really? and the music. Yeah. Oh, I gotta catch up so I can be the guy this time that's like, well, this happened a little differently in the book. They completely, <laughs> that character has a whole backstory. They just glossed over. Wow, they really combined those two into one character and cut half their arc out. Oh, since we're on the topic of books, I just started this one. It's a Jason Lube's uh, John D book. Um, John D and the Empire of Angels. His thesis seems to be that John D was like instrumental in informing the kind of like mythic cosmology of basically the empires that have blossomed since like from the British Empire to America. I might need to look that up. I can also just send this to you when I'm done reading it, because I'm going to have exactly zero people to talk about this book with, unless I like force it on someone else. It's pretty interesting. Like I, I, hmm. I kind of just started digging into it, but he's getting into um, how important apocalypticism was to the foundation of Protestantism, that there was like this definite end of the world is nigh, Pope is the Antichrist, like baked into it, which is kind hmm. of interesting. Because being raised Protestant, I did definitely get like apocalyptic death cult vibes. <laughs> you know, there was a oh, lot of sure. that. Like, I grew up reading uh, Left Behind, which is just like this masturbatory, like, end of the world. Haha, told you we were right, kind of. Yeah, I remember people in church saying that they were going to look down at all of their non-Christian friends or classmates from heaven and laugh at them when the world ended and they were in heaven and their classmates weren't. That's pretty yeah. dark. Nice. <laughs> and now a select scene from the audiobook version of Left Behind, The Kids. Where did dad go? Where's my mom and my baby sister? Follow-up questions. Why is the sun dark and the moon blood red? And what's that, meteors? I too have additional questions. According to my research, God raptured up all his faithful followers to heaven. Us schmucks are left on earth to endure unimaginable torment for our sins because we didn't confess our inherent worthlessness and ask the God of love into our hearts. Why would God let the devil torment us? Don't you get it, man? It's not the devil. It's God punishing us. But I thought God was the good guy. I literally just googled this, but according to my research into evangelical folk ethics, God's nature determines morality itself. Ergo, whatever action God takes is morally justified by definition. Even torturing kids? Let me just flip through this Bible real quick. Oh. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh man. We are so getting tortured. I hate getting tortured. I bet he's punishing us for that Nicolas Cage movie. You think God preferred the Kirk Cameron one? Eh, good point. But wait, why did God rapture the babies but not us? What gives? It must be because we're old enough to be capable of sin. She's right. Last week I stole a candy bar even though I knew it was wrong. 
My mom showed me a movie called Labyrinth. There was someone named David Bowie. Yeah, David Bowie. Same. Yep, David Bowie. It was very confusing for me. We're sorry, God. Please don't send your furious vengeance upon us. Spare us from your inherently morally justified patriarchal abuse. We are helpless before you. Please don't hurt mommy again. Look, I don't mean to be needlessly controversial or offensive just for the sake of being offensive. Yeah, you don't want to go out of your way to piss off the evangelicals. Like, you have to go too far out of your way to piss them off. But doesn't this interpretation of God seem like kind of a bloodthirsty megalomaniac? Oh, boy. Just gonna take a couple steps back. I mean, he's supposed to be all-powerful, right? Right? So why waste time antagonizing helpless human beings? I mean, doesn't it seem like we might be taking the book of Revelation too literally? Couldn't this text be read as a veiled metaphor for uh, an attack on Nero, the famously vicious Roman emperor? There's a lot of textual evidence for that reading. The whole idea of a rapture didn't even really exist until the 1800s. And anyway, doesn't the whole left-behind book obsession itself seem a little like a self-affirming wish-fulfillment fantasy? Like an imaginative manifestation of the collective evangelical Christian shadow archetype in a form made palatable for a hyper-conservative culture that's superficially favors the mawkish, sentimental aesthetic of Precious Moments, Chicken Soup for the Soul, and Thomas Kincaid. Oh god! Oh my god, what is that stinging me? Ooh, oh my too god, oh far god, really should have gone after Thomas Kincaid. Ah, my hubris! According to this semi-coherent website that suddenly became, like, super useful all of a sudden, you're being attacked by an abysmal locust of the fifth trumpet judgment, with faces like the faces of men and hair like women's hair, and teeth like lions, chests like iron breastplates, the tail of a scorpion. Far out! What a bad trip! And the locusts were given power to torment their victims for five months, and their torment was like the stinging of a scorpion, and in those days men will long to die, but death will escape them. Holy shit, that's dark as oh, fuck. Oh god, I thought that was a metaphor. Fuck, it hurts so freaking That much. metaphor is kicking your ass, dude. Was this dude. really a children's book series? This is kind of dark for kids, but at least there's no sex. Wait, really? But we're teenagers. How many books even are there? Forty? Jesus Christ. Jesus no. Christ. Holy shit. Please, God, just no. let me die. Oh god, please just let me die. I was drowning. I The Lord says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. The fearful, unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, tormentors, curses, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second day. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. I love audiobooks. I had an Audible subscription for a while, but it's not really that great of a deal.
like you're not subscribing to their library like with any other streaming service. Your subscription is you can buy one book. You're just like prepaying to buy a book. You're just signing up to continually pay for books. Yeah, I just use uh, there's an app called Libby that lets you download uh, audiobooks from your whatever library you have a library card with. The the only drawback is, uh, I mean, there's like wait lists, but it's pretty good. They have really good selection. Nice. We have a similar service. The libraries around here are a part of called Hoopla. Oh, I've heard of that. That's right. I listened to um, Roy Scranton's uh, We're Doomed, Now What? on Hoopla (laughs) most recently. Yeah. Just a, a light read. Yeah, it seems to fit with this podcast. Yeah. Um, you know what? I didn't really get a good answer, though. You know, the whole book, and then they spend a, a whole middle chunk. is is like a collection of essays, and like the middle third of it is about like his time in Iraq and then ad- how he adjusted to being back. It was interesting stuff, but it seemed a little removed from what I thought I was signing up for. Mm. Um, the book presents itself as being about climate change, and it does kind of come back to climate change. But I didn't get an answer to the question that the title posed, which is like literally why. Yeah, now what? Tell me. Because now now that's kind of what I'm focusing on is like, now what? Given this like array of possible outcomes, projections based on when we act and how much we act and the range that seems likely, how do I accept that and then be able to respond to it in the most appropriate way? And I, I have some idea maybe of where we might be headed. I feel like I've gotten to a place of acceptance, which is still not like, it's still, you know, it's still really uncomfortable, but it's like, I feel like I'm at a place now where I can try to figure out what's a good way to respond to it. And one thing that I've come to is like, being kind of alarmist is maybe useful for people who are still in denial to like get them into the anger phase, at least, because then at least the grief process is rolling. But people need to be able to have something, an alternative. People need to be able to imagine something else. Like something that is worth fighting for or worth building if everything else does collapse. Yeah. And um, I kind of just want to invite people, like anyone who wants to come on the show and talk about it. Let's just imagine, like, let's imagine together what could be possible, whatever, however realistic you want that to be, however, like, idealistic or utopian to what you want that to be. What kind of society would you want to imagine yourself living in? It's a really big question because like growing up in a society that is so saturated with capitalism and and the systems and structures that we have around us, it's it's almost like you said, it's almost impossible to imagine how a world could even exist in any other way. Like it's hard for us to even think about things like before electric lighting became big, people didn't sleep for eight straight hours at night. Like you went to sleep when it got dark, slept for four or five hours, woke up for a couple hours, did some stuff, then went back to sleep for your second sleep. And that's just how the world worked. But because it hasn't been that for a while because of the electric lights and stuff that we have, now that seems so outlandish and weird. Like that would never be the normal. That's never how it could have worked. But it was for a really long time. So how can we think of a world without McDonald's? Like where there isn't just like something to be sold to you on demand at your fingertips at all times. Or we, you and I have talked in the past about how money is essentially power. Like, if you amass enough money, you're essentially amassing more clout to throw around to, to affect things, to, to shape things more in line with what you want. And that's just how it's always been for us. Like, what could we even conceive of that isn't that? Mm. I don't know. What have you been thinking about? You know, I grew up at the kind of birth of the internet. 
I mean, not like the early, early internet, but like when people started getting PCs and then like smartphones, which feels incredibly recent to me still. But even then, you know, we we all had televisions. We had microwaves. You know, I, I just grew up with all of this stuff being normal. And so it is like really difficult to kind of look at it with any degree of objectivity and be like, what of this is necessary? Like what of this does contribute to a, a life worth living? So all I have are just like pleasant images, nothing really concrete. And my hope is like the more we imagine this together, the more vividly we can kind of see the details of it. Yeah. But a big one for me is like, I want to be able to see the stars at night. Yes. I think it's important to see the stars at night, to see these things that are like vast, that make you feel small, that make you feel like you're this like tiny thing in the face of the enormity of the cosmos. It's something that... Like, we can still, you know, see the sun and the moon. We can still go out and see the ocean and the mountains, of course. But it takes so much work to get to a place where you can clearly see the starry sky at night. And that's something that, for most of human history, was such a source of inspiration and wonder for people. And we've, over time, cut ourselves off from it. And a lot of us, like, it's not even something that everybody thinks about all the time. You can see the few bright ones, so you know they're there. And that's just what it is. But, like, I remember a few years ago, the power went out. During a big storm in the winter, and my brother and I went outside and looked up. We were just amazed at how much you could see without all the lights around. It's great. I always loved it as a kid when the power went out because we would, you know, we would light candles or uh, we had like a wood stove. So we would like gather around and, you know, play board games or tell stories or something. And it was sort of intimate and it was so quiet. And, you know, when it was dark, it was real dark and you could like really see stars and stuff. And then when the power came back, you know, you kind of think or I did, I kind of thought like, oh, well, this is, there's something meaningful. There's something like edifying to this that maybe we can just keep doing this. But then the power comes back on and it's all over. Like the first time you see that like flash of light, it's just done. Like that world is destroyed. Yeah. And I don't want to be like a Luddite and say like technology is in and of itself a bad thing or the conveniences of the modern world are per se a negative. Yeah. But I mean, you're right. There's something to be like, you mentioned microwaves when I was living up in Birmingham. I didn't have a microwave in my apartment. And when I first got up there, I was thinking like, oh, I should get one. I should get one. My dad offered to get me one. Rob said he might have a spare one, but I turned them all down and like with the idea of I'm not going to have a lot of money so I'm not going to be able to just buy fast food and I don't have a microwave so I can't just get like hot pockets or whatever and I forced myself to actually like pick up some recipes and learn how to cook a few dishes like from scratch and not having that convenience forced me to get more involved in something that I didn't normally think about like getting something to eat was just I need to drive to McDonald's I need to put something in the microwave and then it came what do I want to make what do I need to do to make that thing and like force myself to think in a more detailed way about what I was doing, what I was eating, and how I was behaving. Which isn't to say that when I moved back here, I didn't go out and buy some like microwavable popcorn and throw it in there when I was watching Netflix or whatever. Like it's a good thing to have. But I think something that a lot of people, I mean, I can only really speak for myself. Something that I don't always do is actively choose to not immediately turn to the, the quickest, most convenient thing that's been provided for me. And I think there's something to be gained from intentionally taking the long way sometimes. Mm. Yeah, sometimes there's a lot of like invisible effects of certain choices that seem efficient or convenient that wind up having like repercussions that are just several steps removed or you don't even really notice. Yeah, It's kind of a, a small step, but 
a microwave sort of alienates you from the production of your food even just a little bit more than just using like a stove you're less connected to your food becoming a meal Mm -hmm. and i think too about i just recently went out and bought some groceries and thought i'll grab something quick that i can just make tonight because i I'm tired or whatever. So I grabbed like a little frozen single serving like Red Baron pizza. And as I was, I heated up the oven and I was like, I'm not going to microwave this. I'm going to cook it in the oven. But then I, as I took it out of its package, I noticed it was already like browned along the edge of the crust. I'm like, this is already cooked. Yeah. I'm, I'm just heating this. I'm not even making myself food. I'm just warming up something that somebody else already made somewhere else and then it through all these processes to get preserved and packaged and shipped. And that makes me think about all the waste that goes into those processes and all the packaging. Like it comes with like a little paper sleeve for when you microwave it and on the instructions it said like if preparing in the oven discard microwave sleeves so this is just throw this away this is not just automatically trash mm. and that leads to like working in starbucks working in like a retail environment you see so much waste people throwing things away that don't need to be thrown away things being thrown in the recycle that shouldn't be recycled or like at the store i'm working now like here in thurston county the way the recycling system works the way starbucks separates its recyclables is ineligible for the recycling program here even though we sort it and and take care of it according to the company policies it's not compatible with the county's regulation so it always has to go in the trash so like there's no consensus on how those things need to be handled and that leads to even more waste from all sides and i guess it's all just to say that like things don't exist in isolation Everything is connected to, to other things, and these systems interact with each other in ways that could be utilized or affected or set up in such a way to like making things better for everybody while having as, as small of a bad impact on the environment and the world as possible. But it's not happening. Yeah, for sure. There's certain values that are kind of baked into capitalism. Capitalism is set up in such a way to maximize a kind of efficiency, sort of like efficiency for profit. Yeah. Values of like human worth and joy in life it doesn't factor in at all yeah and the argument uh, that a capitalist would give is like well you can still maximize those things through capitalism but apparently not if you look at the consequences that does not seem to be the case there's rampant depression and like any factor that you can point to with that whether it's like the way we do food as a society the way we interact with each other and the way we're alienated from each other as a society it's it's insane Insane to believe that there can't be a, a social system that we can set up to maximize other values, like to maximize wellness. That's bringing up wellness. Just that word alone makes me think of um, Diane Feinstein. People demanding that she support like a, a single payer, like universal healthcare proposal. And she was saying no, it's it's not uh, like fiscally viable. It's not financially or economically X, Y, and Z fitting in with what she wanted. And people were getting furious. Like she just kept saying no, the money's not there. No, the finances don't work. No, what Bernie or AOC or whoever is proposing, like it's not going to work because of dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. It's like that isn't the focus that you need to be looking at when it's when the concern is people's health and well-being and survival. Like the thing that always strikes me when you see like reports of like a disaster or some terrible thing that happens, the newscasters say such and such happened and it caused XYZ dollars in damage. Why is that the thing that we think of first? How much money this disaster caused in damage? Why is that a significant figure to anybody who isn't in the industries that are going to be contributing to the relief effort or the reconstruction? Before any meaningful changes or solutions can be enacted, I think work has to, and it's already happening, but I think work has to be put into changing people's mindset about the systems that already exist and the way that they interact with each other and, and the way that we interact with them. 
Oh, another thing I was thinking is, uh, in a way, there's no alternative but to participate. In America, I couldn't really go out to the woods and make my own life. You know, I couldn't round up people and go out into the wilderness and decide to do anything different. There's no wilderness left. Everyone owns everything. Therefore, there's no alternative. And if you can't afford land, you'll never have food sovereignty. And land keeps getting more and more expensive. So you're just sort of stuck. It's not really a choice if you don't have an alternative. Or like some kind of social contract where we can recognize the value of having wilderness. Territory that no one gets to own. That no one gets to... Like, neither destroy nor, like, lay claim to, nor claim as, like, property of theirs or anything like that. Obviously, the outcome that I want to see is the world where you can be, like, happy and healthy and, you know, successful. I mean, I've talked a little bit about this recently. Um, After the 2016 election, I sort of retreated into a little politics shell and didn't really want to think about it at all. (laughs) But now it's getting to the point where, like, I'm recognizing that I need to come back out and look around at what the options are and what what paths can be taken. Where I mean, everything is hanging in this a precarious balance right now, but we, there are people out there who are proposing of potential solutions to some of the problems we're facing. Yeah, I think now's the time that people really need to start getting involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that the Green New Deal is going to be enough to avert some degree of crisis, but I love seeing that conversation happening. I love yeah. the previously unthinkable being thought. I love how it's shifting the Overton window. I love how it's getting people mobilized. I retain skepticism and yet am tremendously encouraged by seeing the Green New Deal becoming such a thing and getting so much popular support and seeing like the Republicans getting so upset about it. (laughs) Yeah. But then also seeing like there are so many Democrats who are also just dismissing it out of hand saying, no, it isn't going to pass. No, it's not going to work. No, no, no. But I don't think that's a way to approach such an important issue. But it, yeah, but it, it sort of makes sense that the establishment would be against it. Oh, the yeah. stuff that would be needed is it, it kind of inherently anti-establishment, like increasing taxes on the rich. Well, guess who doesn't like that? Or cutting military spending. But then how will we seize foreign oil supplies from sovereign nations? How will we seize the oil supply from Venezuela? I mean... I mean, provide aid to Venezuela. That's a whole fucking mess, but... Oh, it sure <laughs> kind is. Of, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's weird yeah. after, like, growing up with Iraq being a thing, and then looking at how that went down, and then kind of like, well, we've learned our lesson, and then feeling like we're about to see the same thing happen again. Yeah, and it's even weirder to me, because at least with Iraq back in the day, the Bush administration was able to point at 9-11 and say, this is connected, we need to go in there because of this. But with Venezuela, there's nothing like that. It's just, we don't like this guy, so we're going to support some rando dude who declared himself president and go take their oil. It doesn't make any sense to me. There, There's less pretext. Like, there, there's yeah. less of an attempt to justify it and more of just like a, it'd be good for us if we like had U.S. oil companies in there. Yeah, wow. uh, it reminds me of the <laughs> the dole banana and pineapple people in Hawaii back in the day. They went in, took over the country, and then immediately petitioned the U.S. to make Hawaii a state so that we could control the resources of Hawaii. Cool. We really suck. I feel like we're probably going to get what's coming to us. 
but um, that'll be kind of ugly. Getting back to the whole like technology and what technologies to adopt. That's kind of an interesting question. I've done some reading about like hunter-gatherer societies and uh, hunter-gatherer societies. You don't really have war. I mean, there's some violence, but it's kind of like small scale skirmishes but because they're like nomadic, there's no property to defend. There's like total egalitarian, basically communism. Everything is shared. They're some of the happiest people, barring other factors like being harassed by the forces of modern society. There's, you know, incredibly high infant mortality rates. And if you're injured, you're basically fucked. But yeah. their health in general is better. Their, their uh, mental health is much better. They know each other like very intimately. So I've been thinking about like, we can't, I don't, I don't really think we can go backwards. Like, I don't think we can like have what, you know, if we know it's possible to build a factory and like to set up a hospital, I don't think we're gonna, I don't think you're gonna convince anyone to like go back in time to, you know, some idyllic era. But like, isn't there a way to take what was good about that and then like try to use that, try to let that inform our choices? Like, food forests are, are are kind of a thing right now, which is, like, a very, like, hands-off gardening technique mm. modeled around how forests work. I, I feel like it would be cool and also kind of maybe part of, like, a rewilding process as we scale back. Fingers crossed for the scaling back being as intentional as possible. <laughs> but it's gonna happen if we're not sustainable. It's going to happen eventually. I would love to see, like, okay, well, let's just set up, like, a shit ton of food forests. Let's have, like, a ridiculous amount of food forests everywhere owned in the commons. That way everyone can be fed and we can go out and forage and, you know, have a good time, like, picking shit with our friends. Everyone gets fed. We can apply our modern understanding of agriculture without it being, you know, turning into feudalism again. Right. I remember in uh, in elementary school, which so weird to think about now that they even did this, but in elementary school in the 90s, they were uh, giving a lesson on why communism was bad. And it took the form of, here's a, a can, like a coffee can or whatever, full of pennies. And I'm going to pass it around, and I would like everybody to just take one, but I'm not going to watch you. And then if it got to the end, and there weren't enough for everybody to have one, like it got to the end and some kid couldn't get one it's like oh somebody took two and that's the problem with communism because everybody has access to everything and there's no rules at all to enforce whether people should take more than is absolutely fair and that's why it can never work because people are inherently selfish and you can't trust them to not steal from everybody else that's so protestant (laughs) oh yeah and I'm wondering if that would be the big argument against the commonly owned foraging area. Like, oh, what if somebody goes out and just forages all of it? And then they'll have it all, and then nobody else will have any. So clearly, it's not going to be a system that works, because people are definitely going to do that. Like, I can see somebody bringing that as the point against it. And honestly, I could see somebody, I could see somebody doing that, like exploiting the system, because people do it all the time under capitalism. But since we've been talking about systems interacting with each other, I feel like an agricultural system that worked like that would have to go hand in hand with a a newer or revised economic system where somebody wouldn't have the incentive to take everything for themselves so they could control it and then get something from others by selling it. But I don't know. I don't know what a system like that would look like. 
I feel like it's it's hard to be too greedy with foraging just because the work put in to retrieve food is higher. Like you're yeah. not just like rolling around with a shopping cart, like knocking free groceries into it. Yeah. But it's also so biodegradable. Like, you know, if you take all the apples, they're just going to rot. Like you're not really going to be any better off. Yeah. There might be. I mean, people could be selfish. But I also kind of, you know, there are cultures that are very focused on social equity, like everyone getting enough, where you you are shamed if you take more than your fair share, or you are shamed if you have a windfall and you don't like distribute some of that, you know, to everyone else. In uh, Derek Jensen's A Language Older Than Words, he references some other, some anthropologist, I don't remember, so I'm I'm just going to have to like sideways reference this. (laughs) But there was this like, okay, if you boil down like what societies are shitty versus what societies people are happy a big difference seems to be like across the board across like all of humankind the difference seems to be about like if self-interested behavior at the cost of other people is shamed or encouraged like if it's if the competition is overly encouraged if it's like everyone is on their own and you got to get what's yours and take and that makes you the victor by virtue of the fact that you pulled it off those societies like universally suck ass like people are mean to each other poor mental health like more struggle more striving cultures where you're shamed for doing that kind of thing people are generally happier healthier Maybe there's always going to be that variation. The the chimpanzees versus the bonobos or whatever, those like poles of our personalities. But I'd like to believe we can choose to have a, a culture that incentivizes sharing just because we're capable of recognizing the value of that and processing it and producing literature for that and mm. choosing to do that. You know, we have a neocortex that allows us to kind of shape our cultures with intention. Yeah. I think, at least in American society, the anti-socialist, uh, anti-communist sentiments for the past 70 years or whatever has been so strong that uh, it's going to take a lot of work to get people to shift into a more group-focused mindset because it's it's very... It's so strange because I, as kids, we're taught that whole anti-communist lesson thing aside. We're always taught, like, share what you have, do what's best for others, work together. And then when you grow up, it's, no, it's dog dog every man for himself mm-hmm. despite the fact that we're built on layers and layers of social programs and we still have a huge uh, sentiment against that sort of a society and I think it's a good thing that it's changing now because that's probably what we're going to need to to focus more on if we're going to have any hope of having any kind of sizable future, it can't be based, like you said, Mad Max. Everything crumbled. The only thing that survived was capitalism and people who want to like exploit others and move things over them. Like it, we can't have any hope for any kind of happy or meaningful society if we aren't going to be working together. And so, I mean, it's hard to say, but people are getting older and they're not going to be around forever. So the people who are coming up with more of like a, a social bent are going to be in power and they're going to be the ones who are eventually going to be able to enact policies. Hopefully, 12 years, apparently. Apparently, we have 12 years to get that done. I mean, things are grim in a lot of ways, but I think there is hope. Because things are starting to shift toward the the mindsets that we need to be fostering if we're going to be able to work together and bring about any kind of hopeful positive change, whatever form that might take. Like I said, I'm encouraged by the Green New Deal being a thing that we're talking about. 
despite previous reports that Generation Z was more conservative, I'm seeing a lot of very politically aware uh, socialist and anarchist Generation Z people. You know, they're, they're like growing up with social media and they seem to be kind of radicalizing themselves. So, yeah, I have hope. I mean, it's all going to change one way or another, Yeah. right? Whoever manages to learn to cooperate with each other are going to have the best chance to survive. So, worst case scenario, if any humans are left, we'll kind of collectively learn to cooperate and to share and to not exploit and to not colonize, one hopes. Yeah. Um, and then just the more intentionally we can transition, the better an outcome we'll have. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I was kind of worried, like, during the 2016 election, I was seeing, like, R slash the Donald crazy conservative memes, like Gen Z kids posting pro-Trump conservative stuff. And I was like, are we the anomaly? Are millennials <laughs> the strange anomalous generation that are like, no, 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 let's put the brakes on this, like, sliding toward the right. I thought mm-hmm. that Gen Z was going to come up and just throw everything in the trash. But now it looks like they're, I don't know, growing up a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I feel like this might just be the my little bubble that I'm living in. I hope it's not. But I feel like Donald Trump has so consistently shown himself to be such a great example of what is so terrible about everything that he says and does and believes in. Like, he, he keeps shitting on the people who supported him. He keeps, yeah. like, throwing people under the bus. He keeps <laughs> dividing his own base you know, there was even, like, I just saw Mitch McConnell was trying to convince him not to declare a national emergency for his stupid fucking wall. Like, even Mitch McConnell is like, dude, this is a bad idea. This is gonna set a bad precedent. And he fucking did it anyway. And he did it because of fucking Fox News. Yeah, Sean Hannity and Pirro and all them telling him what to do. He just does it. Yeah, it's so dumb. But I, I love seeing Republicans voting against him. Like, I love seeing him sowing the seeds of dis in his supporters they're like even the republicans have to be like ah you know what maybe not this maybe we shouldn't just light the match and set the world on fire yeah but i mean i think trump is a symptom i don't think he is the root of the disease yeah um, so even if and when he is voted out there's still going to be systemic issues that need to be addressed not only so that nothing like this happens again but also to start to, to shift like what we've been talking about this whole time, like people's attitude toward the big looming issues that are coming up. Like it's such it's such a like old chestnut stuff. Oh, partisan politics are tearing everything apart, getting in the way of any real progress. But it's it's true. There are certain issues that cannot be made political that have been. Whether you're in a blue state or a red state isn't going to matter when that state's underwater or when there's or no on fire or on fire. There's it's turned into a desert. There's no air of the land. Like it mm-hmm. isn't going to matter when. I mean, we do have, <laughs> it's kind of grim, but we do have time on our side <laughs> like, <laughs> as as things keep going and, uh, you know, weather events keep getting more and more erratic and the crops that used to be able to grow in one place are no longer able to grow there and, you know, the insects are dying, so there's less pollination anyway. 
the evidence is going to keep mounting and mounting. And eventually, <laughs> it doesn't matter how red your state is. Eventually, you're going to be like, well, things are going to shit. And I don't know when Jesus is going to save us. So what do we got? That's what kills me, too. Like, if we can just go back to growing up Protestant Christian, just people talking about even if global warming does exist, it doesn't matter because Jesus is going to come back on Tuesday and we're all yeah. going to be fine. Every generation for the past 2,000 years has thought that they were the ones. Jesus is coming back on Tuesday is such a great term for it because, <laughs> you know, of course it sounds like you're talking about this Tuesday, but when this Tuesday comes and goes, you can always be like, I said Tuesday, I didn't say this Tuesday, mm-hmm. maybe it's next Tuesday. Tuesday. Maybe it's the Tuesday after that. Who knows? And then it's just like that for thousands of years. <laughs> I feel like Jesus is coming back on Tuesday should be the first uh, uh, shirt that you should sell podcast merch. I was just thinking it would make an excellent shirt. It's a great conversation starter. <laughs> if divisive. Yeah. All right. Um, before we wrap up, do you have anything to plug or any shout outs or anything? No. Oh, uh, Christine, didn't she recently posted something, I want to say on Instagram, where she read a, uh, a Japanese like, murder mystery novel? Yeah, she's been reading a bunch of weird stuff. I actually looked up the author and uh, downloaded a couple audiobooks by him. They're like a sort of police procedural detective murder mystery novels. The author is Keigo Hidashino, and they're actually pretty good. Say thank you to her for uh, posting about that, because I really enjoyed the books that I ended up finding because of her post. Oh yeah, I'll let her know. She'll be she'll be pretty tickled about that. As a true librarian, she loves being able to give people recommendations for stuff. Alright dude, thanks for another great chat. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Let's keep it rolling. We'll turn this three Pete into a four Pete, which doesn't, doesn't sound as good. But... And then uh, Pete and Pete. <laughs> oh man, bringing it back. Yeah, to a show I never watched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was aware it existed. Exactly. <laughs> Alex Mack. I did watch uh, Alex Mack, though. She was a Terminator, right? She, she was like a T2000. She could turn into like metal songs. The neat trick. <laughs> Jealous. Hey, it's over. We're done here. That's all. I got no more podcasts. You got the end of the podcast. There's no more podcast for you. There will be more, but there isn't more yet. Actually, this is the first time now since I started, I think, that I don't already have a backlog of recorded episodes. So that's kind of fun. I I don't really know for sure what's going to come up next, but I do have a couple more recording sessions booked. So I think it'll be good stuff. But for now, yeah, I don't know. I guess just go about your life. You know, what were you doing? Like, make some dinner or breakfast. I don't know what time you're listening to this. Or, hey, you, get back to work. Or don't. I don't know. I don't really care. I'm not. I have no horse in this race. Yeah. But if you do want something more to listen to, if you're like, hey, I want to still be listening to stuff, there's other podcasts out there. Um, specifically, I might recommend there was a This Is Hell podcast episode with Jem Bendel, who wrote that deep adaptation paper. Really good. I highly recommend you listen to it. And thanks again to Sarah for sharing this podcast. There was also an episode of Last Born in the Wilderness called Mainstream Psychology Can Go Fuck Itself, Managing Collapse Awareness with Holly Trular. It's really good. If you want something a little, maybe a little lighter in tone, and maybe a little more even maybe just a touch 
on the neoliberal side. But uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Deconstructing Yourself with Michael W. Taft, recently did an episode, it's the latest episode as of now, called Meditation for the End of Civilization with Rick Hansen. That one's pretty good. But if you're like me, you want to listen to the psycho therapy can go fuck itself afterwards because I have a lot of respect for Rick Hansen, but I kind of wanted to argue with him a little bit. But I think the two work really well together. And Deconstructing Yourself is always a very high quality podcast if you're into that kind of thing. If you're looking for something a little different, check out the Left Tendo podcast. There's a dude who makes a podcast about Nintendo games from kind of this like leftist perspective. It's fun if you're into Nintendo games or leftist politics. If you're not into leftist politics, I can't imagine why you would be listening to this one, but I don't know, maybe you're a glutton for punishment. If you're more of a PlayStation or Xbox fan, or if you're a PC gamer, you know, you're you're welcome here. We uh, are tolerant, but um, ANCAPs and TERFs can go fuck off. Opening tracks for this episode were Breaking Over Branches by Fog Lake, Eclosion by Salmo, Spontaneous Existence by Little Glassman, with some I Know His Blood by Vienna Ditto in the middle, closing track by Blank and Kite, the track's called De Niro. It was clips of public domain sermons by Conrad Merle and Leonard Ravenhill. I'm going to be linking to all the music, all the stuff, all the audio assets and sound effects in the show notes. If the show notes aren't actual links for you, like I think on iTunes, it strips out anything that isn't plain text. Just go to the website. It's now or never All of the links are links. I'm also going to be linking to books mentioned, articles mentioned. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I had a good time. Let's do this again. In the meantime... Question the dominant narrative, smash the patriarchy, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, start your own podcast. I mean, it's it's not that hard to start a podcast. It's totally up to you how much time you want to sink into editing and looking for music and that kind of thing. But really, the bar to entry is pretty low. Yeah, everyone should have a podcast. Why not? Yeah, I want like... Um, I want like a cool closing line. I'm listening to the Sleep Creeps podcast. They have uh, Sleep Deep Creeps. And that's just, I mean, it's really solid. I don't know what. Okay. Um, don't do the thing. Everybody can start with something. Don't stop believing. The truth is out there. I got nothing. Okay, bye.